Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about the passion of Jesus. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to participate in our Holy Week events. With Ash Wednesday behind us and Lent upon us, it means that Holy Week will be here soon. If you don't know what Holy Week is, it is the week that Christians remember, the final week of Jesus' earthly life. I read it like this somewhere. Holy Week honors the week that changed the world. It begins with Palm Sunday and concludes at Easter. Our church has four important events happening in observance of Holy Week and the works of Jesus it remembers. We'd like you to be a part of all of them. The events are on Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and of course, Easter. All of these events will look different, but I believe each will be valuable expressions of worship and meaningful to your souls. You can participate in our Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter gatherings in person or online. If you're in our area, we'd love for that to be in person. Monday Thursday is an online-only event. I'm not going to explain each of these events here, but instead I want to tell you to go to wilsonville.church slash holyweek. Once you're there, click on the images to learn about the events. Again, it is wilsonville.church slash Holy Week. I want to make a special note about Easter. I'm excited about it. It's the first Easter that will feel normal in three years. Can you believe that? We desperately want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with you, and so consider this your invitation to join us. Also, I want you to know that we have an Easter basket filled with some pretty cool stuff for the first 25 people that let us know they are going to attend our Easter service. You can do that by going to wilsonville.church slash Easter. That is all I need to let you know right now. But again, make sure you go to wilsonville.church slash Holy Week. I hope you'll do it right now if you can, because I really do want to celebrate Jesus and the final week of his life with you. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon helps you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I'll just start by saying that it's easy for me to accidentally bifurcate Jesus. I just learned that word this week, and it perfectly summarizes uh, what I want to talk about. There was a doctor in the room of a group of pastors, and he dropped that word in, and, and the stupid table, me and some pastor friends are like, I have no idea what that man just meant, but this word bifurcate means to divide equally into two, and that's what I do with Jesus sometimes. I create in my head, unintentionally, these, these two Jesuses. The, the Jesus who, you know, miraculously feeds people, who walks on water, who heals the blind, who has a voice coming from heaven, who glows like the sun. And, and that's one Jesus to me. And then I like make this separation. And then there's this other Jesus who who was scorned by the ones he came to save, who suffered, who was, you know, tried and mocked and and killed. And I know that they're the same Jesus, but oftentimes, like, those moments in his life are so distinct that that I, I bifurcate him. I split him into two, and I think about him in almost two different ways. The, the holy God-man and then, like, the suffering Savior. And I think we all can do that. And, and here's what I think the, the problem with that is. If we, 
If we forget the greatness of Jesus, then it makes the sacrifice of Jesus less great. If we forget the majesty of Jesus, then, then it minimizes the incredible, incredible work that he did in suffering for our sins. And today we start this, this series of sermons on the suffering of Jesus or on the passion of the Christ. And what's fascinating about it is in this first story, it's almost as if the author of John knows that we, as we move into this kind of final section of Jesus' earthly life in the gospel of John, it's almost as if he knows that, that we'll forget everything that he's talked about so far in terms of how great Jesus is. Now, we're going to come back to this, but, but John you know, began this book by saying that Jesus is the Word, and the Word is God, and the word was God, and he talks about how Jesus created everything, and then he goes on to try to prove this to us, that Jesus is God in human form, and, and he proves it to us in all of these incredible ways, like in the power of Jesus to do miracles, and in the, uh, the way he speaks and talks, and his own self-declarations. He does things and says things that no mere mortal could do and say. And he spent all of this time proving that Jesus is God became man. And now he's going to turn his attention to Jesus suffering on our behalf. And at the beginning, it's like he's like, he just knows that there's this tendency within us to forget all of that and now just focus on Jesus suffering. But I think the author understands that, that we can't truly understand, feel, um, celebrate the suffering if we don't remember everything he said before. And so in this first story about Jesus' arrest, the beginning of the passion section of this book, he just points us back to the majesty and the glory of Jesus. Here's how it begins in John 18, 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he had his disciples went into it. Now remember the context here. Jesus has just finished the last supper. We did a whole sermon series on this farewell discourse. The last things Jesus teaches to his disciples. Then he offers this big kind of pastoral prayer for his disciples, his final prayer. And then it says, after he does this, he leaves and he goes over into this garden. It doesn't tell us which garden, but if you've been around church a long time, you have a guess. He goes into the garden of Gethsemane. This is where Jesus would pray that he wouldn't have to suffer. This is where he would sweat drops of blood. This is where his disciples would fall asleep instead of praying that they would stand firm and follow him. I think it's just, I don't know, it brings out the story for me to remember this. Maybe you'll be like, why did he pause to say that? But this happens under a full moon and it's a cold night. And so here is Jesus in this garden under this full moon on this cold night and then we read in verses two and three. Now Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now a lot happens in these moments, some things that John includes that the other gospel writers don't include, but 
but a lot, frankly, that John doesn't include in his telling of this story that the other gospel writers do include. The most famous is that Judas greets Jesus with a kiss. He walks up to him and he kisses him in order to identify Jesus as the one that they are looking for, the one that they've come to arrest. It is interesting that uh, betrayed here and John is in the present tense in Greek. And so it's like all throughout Judas has been the betrayer, the one who's going to betray. And later he's the one who betrayed Jesus. But in this moment, it's actually happening. This is the moment where he is betraying Jesus. In Mark 14, 44 through 45, it says, now the betrayer, it's Judas, had arranged a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once, Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now you have to look at Matthew and Mark to see how Jesus responds to this. In Matthew 26, 50, Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. In Luke twenty two forty eight, 48, it says, Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Now that's the setup. And now listen to what happens in John 18, four through six. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, the first kind of sign that John is talking about who Jesus is here. Knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I'm not going to spend too much time on that opening line, but it's quite clear here in John's telling of this story that he wants you to understand that Jesus is absolutely in control of everything that is happening here. Now, when we think of somebody being arrested, right, we think that the people with the power are always the ones that have control. The people who have the authority are the ones with the actual power, right? I mean, when a police officer makes the arrest, they have the authority, and so therefore they have the power, and most of the time they're going to, you know, get their way out of the situation. And what John wants you to understand here is this is not like any other arrest in history, because the one with the ultimate authority is the one who is being arrested. Jesus has the authority of God and therefore has the power and is in complete control of this situation, even his arrest. In Matthew 26, 53, it says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus calls it out in Matthew's telling. I'm in control of this situation. If I didn't want you to arrest me, then you would not arrest me. If I didn't want